Welcome back to The Francisca Show, a Jewish coffeehouse podcast, the show on which everyday creatives share their unique journeys. I am Francisca, a singer, composer, music producer, podcast coach, and also your host. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm so excited for this new series of women who we are going to be interviewing in the next couple of episodes. And on this episode, we have someone super cool, and I've been waiting for this day for a really long time. So without any further ado, welcome to the show, Hyla Newhouse, living in Lakewood, New Jersey, composer, songwriter, and music producer. Welcome to the show, Hyla. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to finally be doing this. I know. I've been hearing your name, and I just feel like I've been seeing you around, except without the sing part, because your face is not anywhere, and we're, we're totally going to talk about that. Um, but let's just start off from the very beginning. How did you get started in this industry? How did it all begin for you? The mic is yours. Okay. So um, it's funny. Like It's hard for me to even go back to the beginning, because honestly... Um, I think I was just kind of like born, you know, on this path, but um, making the decision to like pursue it professionally was more of the transition for me as opposed to like, what do I want to do with my life? It was like, it was music and it was Kyla and like, I'm not sure where one ended and the other one started um, from a really young age. So I grew up in a pretty musical house. Um, it's actually my, I'm the youngest of five girls. Everybody played, sang um, all the time. And, um, of course I had to, you know, follow suit. So I started taking lessons probably way younger than I should have just because everybody else was doing it. So we did it too. How old and, are you? um, I was five when I started formal, um, training and I literally like, I grew up at the side of the piano, just watching my sisters practice. Like they remember me literally at nine months, like hollering along while they were practicing. Um, so it was just kind of not something I had to ease into. It was just like natural. Um, I took lessons for many, many years, um, from when I was five till I was 17, pretty much on and off. Um, I do give my parents a lot of the credit because they were extremely encouraging. And, um, I would say they like really took me seriously. Um, when you have an 11 year old and she comes in and she's like, Oh, I'm composing original songs. You can be like, you know, let's get you some help, you know? And my parents were like, great, we're going to buy you a keyboard, you know? And I didn't know it at the time, but they wanted to buy the keyboard with the headphones so I could compose to my heart's content under headphones. But um, they were just very supportive, very encouraging. Um, besides for music, they always just like encouraged us to try things. I did like many other things that um, are not in the scope of my profession today, like uh, gymnastics and swimming and all those other stuff. They just encouraged us, try, develop skills, see what you're good at gain confidence. So I credit them with that. Um, and also for listening to me bang around for so many years. Um, I was not a model student musically. Um, I did not have a lot of, you know, desire to sit in one place as many creative artists. Um, you know, we seem to share that predicament. So, um, I just kind of stuck with it in different degrees. I wasn't always like, you know, practicing intensely, but it was just always part of my life. Um, then I moved on to guitar, experimented with drums, got into recording, um, and it just kind of all just like fused, like background music, you know, of my life from when I was really small. I started composing when I was 11 and never really stopped. Um, I had that like little tape recorder. I don't know if that's from your days, Francesca, but I had like that little, you know, trusty tape recorder that went with me everywhere and um, it was just, you know, like followed me through high school. I had a lot of opportunities, summer camp, 
And then once I got married, it just became something, hey, you know, I have it in my hands and I can do it. So besides for teaching um, piano, voice, guitar, whatever else, um, I was always kind of writing and producing on the side. Wow. So side question, you say your parents, instead of saying, you know, you need help, here's a keyboard when you showed interest in writing music and writing songs. What was it like for your environment with your friends? Were they also supportive or did they also, or would they have that cynical, you know? So it's funny. It's so funny because I have one close friend from like really young who like I used to put her on the phone to just listen to me play. And she remembers, she's like, I used to just put the phone down and walk back 10 minutes later and be like, wow, that was beautiful, you know? But um, for the most part, once I was in high school, I was using it a lot. So that was fun because um, it just kind of gave a framework to my extracurricular life in school. Um, you know, I was always going to be behind the piano bench. Um, one year, all of a sudden, I was like, hey, wait a minute. You know, I better get on stage before, you know, I lose this chance forever. And um, then they realized I could act. And I actually got a lead role in the play for two years. And I'm like, no, 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 no more sticking me behind that bench. I know I'm going to spend many, many years there later. And I'm glad that I, I had those opportunities. But that was just kind of default. I lived at the piano bench. And, um, you know, we have an event or we have a program. Kyle is going to write a song. And then, you know, there was a time where I was writing spoofy songs in class, just like, you know, to popular music. And the whole class would know what I was up to because I'd be like, you know, sitting there kind of like playing piano on my arms and, you know, like I'd be in a funk. And then they, at the end of class, they'd be like, let's see the song, you know. So I did have I did have support and it was just kind of like part of the rhythm of my life. It was like not even something I had to think about much, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So everyone went along with it and supported you. That's so pretty beautiful. Much, pretty much. And I did have a lot of good opportunities, like good mentors and, and just, you know, uh, role models to watch and learn from and kind of help me just give a little bit of shape to my skills. Yeah. So I'm grateful for that too. Okay. So we're going to have a, a ton of questions and I'm not sure where they fall in. So I'm going to ask two now and jump on one of them, whichever one comes first in your storyline. So what was your big break and how did you start to monetize? What came first and how did it go from there? Okay. So um, it's an interesting question because I can't say I ever, like I can go back and say that was my break because again, I started doing it when I was 11 and the opportunities just kind of came commensurate with me growing up. Um, but there were like a bunch of big breaks where I was able to tap into new markets or move to a new stage. And that's what I'm so grateful for, because if I would have been staying static, you know, even doing now what I was doing when I was 20, I think I'd be like, you know, totally burnt out. So I've had new doors and new, you know, like opportunities open up and, you know, you know, you need willingness to explore, you know, it's not for everybody to keep reinventing themselves. But as an artist, I found that like, I really got big breaks in different areas every couple of years and it's just been fun. Um, so my big break for composing, I guess like the first song I have that when, like I would say back in those days, we didn't use the word viral and today we probably shouldn't either, but okay. Um, the song that I wrote when I was a senior in high school, it was called Imatema Shamrim. Um, I wrote it for a school Shabbos that I was actually directing and I remember I wrote it in the middle of the night. I was at my grandmother's because um, I used to stay there. She she was alone so we used to take turns there and whenever I was writing in the middle of the night in her house you had to be like dead silent like you couldn't even like tiptoe out of the room. So I just grabbed these like shalom papers. Do you remember those like pads that said shalom and had like pictures of like Israel all over them and I wrote it on like for sure 20 papers laid out on my bed like verse, chorus. 
I had a little melody line for the chorus in my head. It just kind of took shape. Usually I need a piano. This was no piano. This was silent after midnight stuff. And that song really just like took off. It went from my high school to my camp to my seminary. And then um, when I was 21, I remember I like, um, yeah, I was expecting my first baby and I sold it to Shirley Bolivar and he put it on an album. And then I like distinctly remember he called me up. They were in, you know, post-production stages. And he's like, I think we have to change this one line. And I had just given birth and I'm like, change whatever you want. But um, at the end of the day, I kind of reclaimed that song and put it on my own album. Um, I have two solo albums of my compositions out, um, which we can talk more about soon. They're called Miracles. And I, you know, was kind of able to like take it back and put my own stamp on it, even though we did a nice job with it. Um, I was very grateful for that opportunity. So that was probably like my first big song um, that kind of put me on the map. And then I was heavily writing, like all the time, like. I don't want to say on steroids, but just like through my 20s, um, Fast and Furious. A lot of really, you know, songs that I'm really proud of that mean a lot to me. Um, so that was like, you know, my 20s. Writing and um, doing my family. And then, like, when I was 29, I finally jumped in and produced my first album. And it was like, I had stockpiled the songs, you know, in the vault. And I knew exactly which songs were going on that album. And then it just, it was like magic. I had um, David Perlman, who is a, I mean, now you might, you may know of him on Instagram. He has quite a presence of his own, but then he was this cute little 11 year old boy. who was a Miami boy. And um, he walked into my studio and it was just like magic. We just, you know, recorded these 10 songs and put out that first album. I was really just literally dipping, dipping my toes in and then like jumping big time. But it was really, really well received um, by Hashem and that was my first album. So that was another big break um, for me to be able to share, you know, the music with so much of the greater world. That was like, whoa. Um, and my last big break, I guess, would be having broken into the um, greater male, you know, music industry where I'm collaborating with singers, um, selling songs to them, um, working on songs with them. And that's a totally different kind of experience. Um, still newer. You know, I'm only doing that for the last couple of years. Uh, you know, you can check back with me in a couple of years and I'll give you some more feedback on it. But um, that's kind of been my latest, you know, foray as far as big breaks. Okay, that's awesome. And I'm going to break them down a little bit. So with your first really Willigerth uh, collaboration slash selling him your song, how did you reclaim that song? Did you have to ask him permission or part of the contract and agreement was that you can reuse it? So that's a good question. So th these are definitely things, um, you know, you always clarify beforehand. And I've learned that as a composer, I don't want to ever give up full rights to anything. Um, so I usually have some sort of arrangement where you can use it and I can use it. Um, so some sort of 50%, you know, ownership and rights. And of course, who I am as a composer has evolved from when I was, you know, that naive 19 year old girl who was just desperate for anybody to sing my songs and who I am today. So, um, there's, you know, there's always going to be like room for interpretation, or room for discussion with that. And of course, there's all the halachic issues and the licensing issues that you can get into. The Jewish industry is not, you know, um, so focused on the royalty angle, which I'm sure you know about. Absolutely. Um, They're not optimized yeah. for it at all. We're not set up. Uh, in general, you know, they don't lend themselves um, to the compose. I mean, in the secular world, you have composers whose, whose grandchildren are living off of royalties of some song they wrote, you know, in the 40s. 
it, it just doesn't work that way um, for the most part. Uh, but again, that's something I'm still exploring myself and the jury's out. I'll, I'll keep you posted. But um, that's pretty much what so happened there. Paid you an, he paid you an upfront fee that mm-hmm. allowed him to use that song. Okay, right, wonderful. Right. So your yeah. next break where you had um, the Miami boy, mm-hmm. his name is... David Perlman. David Perlman. He, you found him or he was looking for something and then, so what did that arrangement look like? You paid him, he paid you, was it Basically, no, basically I had been, like he had kind of walked into my studio for some, uh, you know, educational project for the consortium of day schools. I was doing work for them at the time, um, you know, writing songs to their curriculum and he waltzed in and he was just so great. And, um, you know, once we had like a sort of rapport where, you know, he was gaining from the sessions and I was, you know, able to kind of, you know, work on this material, um, I was like, wait a minute, this kid is great. I have my songs. I've always wanted to do this. Now's my chance. So um, it just kind of, you know, it was obviously it was a God given opportunity. You know, it wasn't something that I had to like cross the ends of the earth for. But um, how it just came together was like really the right time, the right place. My studio at the time was um, a study. I lived in Brooklyn, a very small apartment. My studio was a study. It was the insulation was immaculate. It was wall to wall books, and it was tiny. And it's like it's amazing when I listen to the album, you know, what it kind of came out of. I was expecting my fifth kid. I was like, you know, obviously not coming to sessions all dressed up. It was just kind of like amazing how I could share from my tiny little space with so much of the world. And that's just really what I found for myself as a niche. You know, that like me here in my studio, just being able to actually share something that, you know, can travel around. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just the reason I'm asking all these questions, because it's so fascinating, especially in this industry. You never know who comes to who and who's pitching who Mm -hmm. and who's paying who. So you'll have people pitching and expecting things from each other. And there's no like etiquette sort of. Right, a hundred percent, hundred percent. So it's so. So, so here it was a goal for me. My goal was Kyla wants to put out an album. She wants to share her music with the world. My goal was not um, to you know to market um, myself personally, you know, which is I guess how everything took shape. Um, so it was like, hey David, you're amazing, you know, and I want someone to sing my songs and sing them really well. That was my number one priority. Uh, you can sing them to your heart's content at concerts. You can, you know, be the face. He did some interviews that I wasn't, you know, interested in doing and, um, and, you know, and you can get your career jump started. And he really did. And he's actually so talented. He's working on his own solo album now. He's developed a style that's just like, just, it's great. You get, you should check him out. Um, he's released quite a few singles after that. He sang on my second album as well. He's got so much flair, so much style, so much talent. And, um, he really did catapult himself to a new place without having to pay, um, for an album. So, yeah, we worked out some sort of arrangement where it was worthwhile for him and, you know, he did get paid to come in, and, you know, but I do think that um, it was great for him. Like, he really got a great start. And for me, he just, he was the voice, you know, and he picked up my nuances. Um, if you go and ask my, my girl fans in camp and, you know, my, my own um, friends who were there when these songs were written, you know, they they said it, that he just, he had my nuances. He had me. Um on there. So that, that meant a lot to me. Yeah. And I'll just dive into the elephant in the room here, which is that you have built your brand, not on your face and not on your voice, but on other people's. And 
actually using the men in the industry. Which leads me to the next question. And it's not a question. I just want to bring this out. You you are talking about this like a perfect arrangement. You found this person <laughs> who has a beautiful voice, who gets everything you needed, and who did the interviews you didn't want to do. And you paid him. And he had this ideal... You know, if you think of any aspiring star, all they want is some producer, composer, and songwriter to discover them, do all the work for them, all the writing, all the coaching, put it out for them, and then they can jumpstart their career most of the time. You have an artist who's writing and then is, is trying to collect money from their family and friends to go to the studio, right. and then they're right. managing right. all these different aspects, and then they get their product, which is exactly what my story looked like but this is something like just out of you know out of a movie this is an ideal situation and you look so happy with this arrangement and I just can't not ask like do you feel like you got the wrong side of the deal here <laughs> and what's a good it, question yeah. it's such a good question and it's not one that I'm often forced to look at um, but let's just, let's just, let's, let's back it up a minute because it's really, it's been a journey. I'm at this for, I mean, you want to go from when I'm 11 or when I'm, you know, 18 and I actually started doing it professionally, which to answer your question about monetizing it. Yeah. Right away when I was 17, 18, I got out of school, you know, and I would suggest everybody to look at it that way, but yeah, that's a separate topic. I'm, I'm digressing. Um, so going back, um, there was no social media and Instagram when I got started, I was 18. Um, my medium of communication was a double deck karaoke machine where you, I mean, I mean, if you, if you actually lived in the age of tape, you'll appreciate this. If you didn't, I'm dating myself. Um, so you recorded on one side. Okay. And you put down, you know, that lead track and then you swap the tape to the other side and you put down a harmony track and recorded that onto the other side. You went back and forth on a karaoke machine and it was a multi-track recorder because you just kept going and going and going until you had layers and layers. We won't discuss feedback, static, any of that stuff, right? Lack of tuning, um, but it worked. And that was my medium of communication. That was me building my brand back in those days and that worked for my clients. My clients were um, camps, schools, organizations, all female, there was no, you know, getting up there involved. Yes, here and there I let it comes it and, uh, you know, I had my own, I, I worked in camp, um, I worked in schools, um, but it wasn't like I need to get on, you know, behind a camera and share my face with the world to build my brand. In a way, that's an added pressure that the people who are looking to break into the market today have. And, you know, let's just put it out there. That's hard. It's hard work. It's hard work to keep up the profile. It's hard work to... Um, to build it, to, to be the face, to smile and be chirpy, to perform all the time. It's a lot, a lot of work. Um, so I didn't have that pressure when I was actually getting started. It didn't exist. It wasn't. I mean, you had two female performers. Um, Who? Chayla? Chanel? You had, you had Malki Ginniger. Yeah. I mean, you had Kinera when I was a kid. Um, I mean, I grew up, I, I was in Rachel Miller as a kid, so that's like really back in the day. But these were like, all they did was one or two shows a year there was no video almost like nothing it just wasn't it, it didn't exist so that's a fairly new development if anything i had to reinvent how i want to present myself with the added option of social media is this something that i want to jump into so that's number one um number two when you say um i built my brand without my face again because it was 
you know, without your voice, really, when you were doing it. Also, not true because I did build a brand. It just wasn't a social media brand. I record my vocals for my own Polisha project. I just try my best to keep them, you know, under wraps. Now, that might sound like a long shot, and it is a long shot. I'm not God's policeman, and I've given up like running after people who download my stuff. But it's kind of widespread and known out there that I don't call myself a singer and that I don't want to be, you know, someone once came to me and they're like, oh, I love this song that you sing about the morning and I use it as my alarm clock, you know, and even my brother wakes up from it and I'm like, oh, that's great. Yeah, it's just what I had in mind, you know, to be the alarm clock for your brother. Um, so, but people do know today that, that you know, that's my persona, that I, I wasn't looking to be a singer and I prefer not to be illegally copied and that my, you know, my bread and butter comes from writing and composing and the albums that I put out. And I don't want people copying and sending around the stuff that I sang for within a girl's camp. But um, again, it's not something that I try to control. Let's be realistic. But I am not a singer. I could upload yesterday, uh, I would say about 500 songs to any medium and sell them. So if I wanted to, I would, but I didn't because it wasn't the direction I ended up going in. But I did build a brand. It just was catering to my clientele. And being able to you know, produce my own albums has moved me to a much bigger clientele. Being involved in the male music industry, more clientele. But I had a clientele and I had a brand. It was just, you know, yes. I didn't need this to build it. Yeah, you know, so I sang, I did some live events, um, wrote, recorded. That, that was where it was at for me until, until Miracles, yeah. pretty much. Incredible. So before we move to miracles, tell us a little bit about the male industry. <laughs> so um, the male industry. So I guess um, I'll just back up. I know I didn't answer this part of your question, but you were saying like, uh, you know, like I, that I look at it like it's a great arrangement. It took me time to get here. When I was younger, I always assumed I'd end up, you know, like I knew there were different options. I was trained as a piano teacher and that was, you know, my first you know, line of defense right away. That was a regular income, was something I did for years. Um, I I worked in a school, actually taught, like regular taught and taught music and phased that out slowly. Um, I started recording, you know, when, back when, when Proof Tools broke into the market, like, uh, you know, years ago and, you know, I had my studio. So I had so many different things going on. Um, a big part of me growing up was figuring out you know, what my own secret sauce is and what I need to focus on instead of like being all over the place and wanting to do a million things. But there are so many extra fun things I can do when I need a little change. So I do do a live event here and there. If it stimulates me and the crowd, you know, is, mo is a motivating crowd for me and the idea is talking to me, I'll do, you know, even just be the pianist or, you know, join another women's live event that's, you know, that works for me. Um, but it just wasn't something I had to turn to as a daily a daily part of my career because I had so much going on just with writing and you know producing my own music but it took me time to get here is what I'm saying it's not like I knew when I was 20 that I didn't want to perform and what happened was I had a couple of opportunities to be involved in live stuff and what I realized is um, it's very demanding and if I have to choose more practically and I have a studio songwriting jobs teaching that's reliable let's make something out of this first and performing is nice, but you know it's not it's not something that is practical for me on a daily basis. Um, performers work so hard. I just want to like credit them for a minute. Anybody who 
gets up their life. They travel, they hustle, they, it, it's physical. Um, so that's really what motivated me in the direction that I'm in. And then the more time that went on, I realized that I like what I'm doing and performing comes with so much extra energy expended. I can't imagine doing it on a daily basis. And I didn't love the um, having to engage with everybody so much. Um, being so on was I found hard. Um, and this way I engage with everybody just on your own you know, terms, my sphere and my beautiful little sphere over here. Um, and it just, it worked for me, but it was a journey. So sometimes it just takes time, you know? Yeah. Male industry, male industry. Let's now. jump in. So like I said, not in it for very long. Um, once I got into it much smarter, much older, and I've been like approaching it one day at a time because, um, you'll notice there are not many female composers working in the male industry. There's me, Mary Mizraeli, um, you know, not very many that are involved regularly. Um, there's a lot of reasons for it. Um, number one, they have a completely different setup. When they want to compose some songs for an album, they get together with a composer and they jam and they see what happens. Now, uh, I, I won't be having jam sessions with the singers anytime soon, so that just doesn't work. So it's either me pitching that material I already have um, in some sort of a, you know, pitch adjusted way so that they're not actually listening to my voice and, you know, there's all different opinions and, you know, halachos involved for, you know, ask your LOR if you got any questions in this arena. But um, for the most part, I'm able to like, pitch my voice down and, you know, I got this kind of L.H. Wable voice going on um, a couple of semitones down and, and that works to communicate with them. But um, then they just have to choose from material that I wrote, usually material that I wrote for a female audience, unless... Um, it's stuff that I'm just literally pitching to them and it just it's not as easy as they have it with the male composers that's number one um, number two to be quite honest um, it's a very nice um, plus on top of what I'm already doing but I again my daily you know picture in the studio is, is full-time so if I were to want to pursue selling to singers and being you know involved with that, it would be 24-7 making new demos and trying and pitching and very often coming up short or being prepared to, you know, drive straight down to a dead end. And I have that option or I have a full-time, you know, occupation in my studio. So it looks like, you know, great, dive in and you can do that all day and it's, you'll be so famous and your songs will go all over. It's nice, but it's not practical and realistic as what I do have on my plate. So it's icing on the cake. When it happens, great. You know, I, I have an agent who markets some demos for me. When I get a, you know, a singer who's interested, um, I, I try not to, you know, communicate back and forth too much because it can go on forever. And um, and then, you know, if they love the song, then I go to work on it and I make it work for them. And that's pretty much my process in the male industry. Is there anything you see there that? Um, you know, that's, that works or that's great about the male industry. I don't know if you know anything about the mainstream or the secular industry of music, but is there something unique to the male Jewish industry that you see? Well, I, I, I am not in it from the inside enough to know, like, um, you but know what I'm saying? I'm not sitting in on recording sessions, even my own material. Let's say right now I'm working on a 
a single with um, Benny Friedman and writing for some, you know, I work with Donnie Gross a lot, who's, a, who's produced my last album and does a lot of production for Benny Friedman, Mordecai Shapiro, Joey Newcomb. Um, I am, you know, communicating with them mostly through, you know, WhatsApp, email, sending things back and forth. You know, there's not much like getting in a room with them. I'm, you know, it does, it's not necessary and it wasn't what I was looking for. And for the artists that I want to work with, it's usually not what they're looking for either. So it's hard for me to say what's going on on the inside. I'm an outsider looking in at the okay. end of the day who just like is, you know, kind of like in, intrigued, like, wow, so interesting. Um, the ones who hustle, hustle really hard. They do. They, you know, they're working weddings night after night. Oh, yeah. So tell me, what, what are those singers looking for in their songs? Like, you probably have an understanding already. What, what I'm developing an understanding because, you know, my songs are always about a message. Always, first and foremost. And obviously, in order to make somebody bite your message, to make somebody go for your message, it has to be packaged beautifully. So, you know, if you have a great message, but the tune is going nowhere and there's no hook in the chorus and, you know, and it's rhythmically not enticing and it's not commercial, you know, Nobody's, nobody's going to buy your message, as wonderful as it is. So um, the key is to package it right, right? So um, they're looking for commercial, meaning it does have to fit the bill of what's being produced today. Some of my songs are not so commercial because they're message-driven. So, for example, in the female industry, there's a lot of words, there's a lot of emotions, there's lent. There's a lot of lent in those songs. It's always like cut down, cut down. The typical Jewish song today is three and a half minutes. Uh, you know, the BPM's got to be at a specific certain place. We like moved away from dance. Now we're moving into that like 100 BPM, you know. Um, For anyone listening, that's it's very specific. beat per minute. Oh, yes, your... I'm sorry. Tempo, how fast. Yes. You know, so, so there is a different criteria. And not all of my songs are, you know, going to work there. And I'm okay with that because... Again, my primary audience was, and I think, you know, will continue to be um, the Jewish females that I want to inspire, you know? Um, so with that said, I have to pick and choose what I want to market to the singers. To be quite honest, some of my songs, some of them cannot pull off. Um, I've been told by producers, like, uh, you know, like a certain song that I had, he's like, this you know, this should go to Disney. I can't think of one Jewish singer that I work with that can that can sing this well. You know, so thankfully there are some female performers who I've been able to share my material with. I am picky, like, about who I want to sing my songs. I would sometimes withhold a sale from a perfectly legitimate singer because I feel like, you know, he's not the right voice to articulate it. Um, and I've had to say to myself, you know, you want to share your songs with the world, and, you know, you can't always do that, you know, like you can't always say it has to be the perfect voice. Um, but in general, not every song is a perfect fit for every singer. The singers are looking for in the genre. It has to fit commercially with what's being produced. Um, you know, there is a little more, you know, you want to like Mordecai Shapiro wants a little more pop. Some of the more Hasidic singers want a little bit more, you know, either old school or more, you know, klezmer slash dance. You know, so you have to kind of feel it out. You have to think what's what's going to work for which singer and pitch the right stuff to the right people. Um, and do they usually do they usually reproduce the song? What do you mean by that? 
like in like, I believe in the mainstream world, they have their professional engineers redo the production on their end. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm just pitching them demos, you know, ideas, and um, usually only when they request them, because otherwise I could just send material out all day and I, I don't have the time for it. But usually when somebody reaches out to me and says, you know, like that's what happened with Mordechai Shapiro, he. You know, he heard a song that I had written for an organization that Benny Friedman sang. It's called No Time Like Now. And he, he liked the song. So he came, you know, he he reached out and he said, do you have any more material? I'm working on an album. And, you know, that's how it went. Um, Moshe Tischler, I don't know if you've heard of him. He also just put out a debut album. It's a great album. Um, we're looking for material. You know, two songs talked to him. We worked on them. I rewrote lyrics. Um, and then they go ahead with their own team and do the production. So I'm not involved in producing their work because it would just be like hard for them, I think. Like, you know, an unnecessary. For sure, 100%. Like, yeah. Let's just go over the practical end of it, the actual way you monetize day to day. What does your studio setup look like? Okay. So um, I'm happy to share this because it took me so long to get here and it's allowed to take everybody long, but. Um, my journey has been um, solo to stereo, so to speak, and mu musical lingo. So I started out obviously doing everything myself, uh, you know, in my spare bedroom with my little studio and my music lessons and 24-7, um, being the secretary, being the intake, being the book bookkeeper, um, also being the arranger, the musician, the vocalist, and the mixing engineer. Um, and it worked for a long time. Um, until it became clear to me that um, some of the jobs I was doing I'm not necessarily cut out for. And there are wonderful people out there who are more cut out for it. So, um, Baruch Hashem, I moved into my current studio, which is the whole basement of my house, um, four years ago. And I now have space to um, have music lessons going on in other rooms with a whole staff of teachers, which is so much fun. There's just music coming out of every corner. That's one, one division. Then I have my studio, which is made up of a great team. It's me, my secretary, my team of engineers and mixing engineers. I work with a great team of arrangers and every project is now um, multi-pronged where I bring my secret sauce, which is composing and the initial arranging and, you know, the writing and, you know, just really producing. And I have people on board to do the other stuff. So for example, if we get a, we just had a bar mitzvah boy and we put together, we composed a brand new song for him to sing at his bar mitzvah. And I composed and did the initial arrangement, had my arrangers work on the finished arrangement, had him come to record with a different engineer, had it mixed by a third. Like there's just um, a lot of collaboration and a lot of great people, each focusing on what they're great at. That took me so, so long to figure out that in order to grow, I needed to add more people to my process. I needed to focus on what needs me and what does better without me, like the numbers and the scheduling. Um, and I'm so grateful for you know for having had that experience and for having you know gotten to this point. But that's important. Um, definitely important to as you move along in the process when you can. Um, give over the things either that you don't enjoy doing, that are too time-consuming, that anyone else can do, and focus on where you can expand your personal craft and secret sauce and make it better. Yeah, I love that. It's so important because this way you get to work more on the areas you're good at and you enjoy, and then you don't have to drain your energy with things that are hard or tedious for you or unenjoyable. 
and even more so in a creative pursuit than in any other. Because let's remember, we started out as kids doing this because we enjoyed it. Then somewhere along the lines, it's like, oh, this is my job. It's my job that I love. It was also my hobby, but now it's a job. And as much as we would love to come on here and say, I compose songs and I want to do nothing else all day, that's just not realistic at this point, being that it's something I do as a career. Sometimes I am commissioned to write a song and I might not even connect to the message and it's still my job to write as best of a song as I can for that client. So um, you need to recharge your batteries. And if you're doing scheduling, bookkeeping, all that stuff, there's no way you can creatively feel um, like um, rejuvenated enough to do what you're great at. It's creative. It drains the life out of you to do creative things um, in a different way than a nine to five job. And you need to leave space to to inspire yourself to breathe so that you can continue creating. Yeah, absolutely. So, so what does it feel like to be behind the scenes with all your talent? And and I'll go a little deeper. Do you sit and listen to male Jewish music in your free time? Oh, that's a very good question. So um, do I sit and listen to male Jewish music in my free time? So I'm trying to think. I don't have that much free time. But um, I do listen to music a lot because I have teenage girls at this point. I have uh, almost 14 year old and then like rapid succession of a bunch of girls. So there's a lot of music playing all the time. Um, we are hung up on Yishai Rivo right now, uh, like the rest of the world. And um, we do listen to like whatever new albums come out. They're very, my kids are diverse. They love like Israeli music and um, we love oldies. We love like Moshe Yes oldies and um, Avram Freed, like the real, you know, they like really good vocal performances. They don't appreciate just like pop music with an annoying, you know, over auto-tuned, over the auto-tuned voice. You know, that's not going to fly in my ass. We need diversity. We need quality vocals. You know, people who can sing. What about female Jewish music? Okay, so that's a very good question. So I do work with a lot of great people in the female music industry. Um, I work a lot with Devorah Schwartz, collaborate with Bracha Jaffe quite a bit, and... Um, trying to think they don't they don't listen to the music out loud in my house much mostly just because I also have boys but um they do follow it they are curious about it they do you know what I'm saying they they love to sing so they like to analyze you know the different vocals and nuances and they you know the problem is they also harmonize on top of everything so you can almost not hear who's actually singing but um they do follow it they do they do have an interest in it because I work with it um, I don't like it to take over all day and all night just because it's my work. So um, in general, I don't expose them to, you know, everything that's coming across my studio desk, every, you know, non-Jewish song that somebody wants to cover with new lyrics and stuff like that. Like I try to just not make a very big deal out of it because um, I don't want, first of all, I don't want to force music on them. Um, I want them to find their way in it or without it in their own way, you know? So everybody has the option of music lessons and developing a talent. I have, you know, three musicians so far and um, some serious ones, really serious ones, like blow me out of the park. Um, but I, I don't want to force it on this. Yeah, yeah, as in my daughters, I have, yeah. I'm I have like one who's an intense personality and she really, she's got the talent and the drive to practice. I'm like, who are you? We don't look related because I did not practice. 
Um, and I don't want to force it on them. So I want them to kind of find their way to it, you know, not in a way of like we grew up and we just had to, you know, absorb this in an IV drip. I want them to, you know, forge their own path in it. So when they ask for something, sure, absolutely. You want to engineer, you want to learn how to work a session, sure. You want to take lessons, great. You want to sing, great. Um, but very much, you know, from them, I don't want to force it on them. And I don't want it to be like, you know, I don't want it to just like take over everything for myself as well. You know, I am other things besides for a musician. It took me a while to learn that. Like what else? Tell us so, a little bit more about you. Well, I'm a mommy, right? And um, a sister, you know, I have a big extended family. Um, I like to do a lot of other things. I like to be in the kitchen. I like to be social. Um, I just have a lot of other pursuits, you know? I'm not going to start listing all of my interesting hobbies, but I just don't like the idea that I'm only defined by that. And actually, when I when I when I'm not in my own professional setting and people ask me a lot of questions about singing and music, I find that I have a hard time not shutting down because you know, like I'm at a wedding. Let me just be at a wedding, you know. But yeah, I'm sure everybody can relate to that. That's that's a universal feeling. So how does it feel? And maybe I'll extend this also raising daughters who are in the music industry or aspiring to be, how, how does this space feel to you with so many singers going out there and singing, actually putting their music online, their music videos? What, what's your, you know, stand or your feelings about it? So, um, my feelings are, let's just remember my feelings about me, which is what's nice. I don't need to give an opinion on what anyone else is doing because it's really not my problem or business. So I never present them with an opinion on what others should be doing. I can say, this is what works for me, you know, and that's very important to me as a value, music aside, you know. Um, I am not here to tell the female Jewish, you know, um, industry what is right and wrong. Everybody has to go and figure that out on their own. I can tell you what feels right to me, you know. So with my kids, it's going to have to be the same kind of process of not can I or can't I, but does this feel comfortable and does this feel right for me? You know, does this sit well with me? Um, So, you know, people get very hung up on is it Tanias and is it okay, Kolisha and stuff like that. And I, I really think that anybody who gets hung up on principles about it is really um, sidetracked because you can cook up principles galore. You can find halachos that will say everything you want them to say. The big question is, who are you? What is your picture? And what works for you? You know what I'm saying? Like God could handle each of us individually. He doesn't need any of us to take care of the other person's stuff. So what does God want from me? What am I here to do? What's my purpose? What's my picture? What's realistic? What's my goal? And, you know, that's the best way to pick a path. But anybody who thinks that there's a, you know, universal standard for, you know, what's going to work for everybody, it's just, I mean, completely sidetracked because you can go on and on and on and not accomplish anything, you know? So for me, it was a process. It was years and years of saying, you know, and even sometimes reevaluating, doing an event and then saying, 
you know, I think that was outside of my comfort zone because people had cameras all over and I know people pass the clips around and I just, it's just not what I'm doing. So yikes, let's not do that again. Let's not do an event that's going to be heavily televised, you know? Um, and every time something comes up, I have to, I have to give it thought and, and hope for clarity to say I have these big universal principles. Like it's not what works for me, you know? Well, I love that. And given that you live in Lakewood, which is one of the most um, commercialized Jewish communities, I I feel like in Israel, you could just be in some town and do whatever you want. And even in Brooklyn, in some places, and Muncie, also everyone's their own thing. In Lakewood, it's, it's as commercialized as you get, I think, in the Jewish community. Maybe I'm wrong. But I am so impressed to see you speak like that and about like really encouraging your daughters to find their voice and to look at everything instead of black and white, but is this the right thing or is this the right time or is this comfortable? Those are questions that are, I think, key in, in, in healthy development. So I am for sure with, with girls for sure. And definitely living in a black and white community that likes everything to be black and white because it's just easier. You know, colors are very messy. Black and white is so neat. You know, and um, just it would be easier, it would be much easier. But it's just not it's not the way most people, you know, see any kind of reach any kind of potential at the end of the day. You know, so for me, um, I do live in a community that, you know, encourages being in a box and um, not necessarily in a bad way. It's just what works here, you know. And um, I am not going to fit into any box because while I was raised in a very um, you know, straight, you know, with a straight set of values in a insular community, I was also raised and encouraged to be open-minded about what I could do. If I would be close-minded in general, I'd be close-minded about myself as well and, and what I'm capable of. So to me, parents who said, yes, you could write songs. If you think you can write songs, you probably can. I mean, I had another sister who was pursuing, um, who was pursuing nutrition from when she was 11. She was putting other people on, you know, eating plans. And she's doing this successfully as a career now. And my parents never said to her, you know, you're nuts, stop writing down what everyone's eating. They never said that to her, you know? So that to me is open-minded, even though my parents are very in the box, you know, what you would call, you know, Haima Shabara Park people. And they, you know, they follow all the rules and we were all raised, you know, in the box. The thinking was, you know, be open-minded about what you could do and where it could take you. And that's, I think there's a big difference between saying I'm open-minded and anything goes and saying I'm open-minded and I I will think about things. I'm willing to think. I'm willing to explore, you know, options. Um, And and there's no one black and white right answer at the end. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, my kids are being raised in the box. You know, I'm the colorful one in this house. My kids are always like, ma, you're too colorful. But... But on the other hand, they do think they will, they will, the day they need to figure things out for themselves, they will have the, the space to do it. And, uh, you know, the voice in their head that says, you know, this is not, you know, a for sure thing. I must be that. I must end up here. You know, um, they'll, they'll have a little support to take a drink. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. And I love it. Can you talk a little bit about your goals or dreams what's next for you that's a really good question um i have stopped living my life that way in general 
Um, I went from being a person who planned my life down to the last detail. Also, because I'm a creative type, who you know, you know, you know that all that science about creative people being disorganized and being left side of the brain and you know not doing well with numbers and all that stuff. And you know, even if you were a creative type and you were great with numbers, you would have that like rhetoric in your head of like you're not supposed to be good with numbers. You'll just mess everything up. So um, I've always been you know kind of like tightly holding on to let's be organized, let's work time management, let's be productive, um, and let's plan everything. Let's plan everything and um, experience in life and probably kids and experiences have taught me that um, it's just not a happy way to live. So I make goals for a day at a time um, and I allow myself to put the rest in God's hands and say the big picture, anyway, I have no control over. My goal is to show up today and see what you have in store. You know, um, that works for me today. Floozy as it sounds. It's beautiful. It's really, it's real. It's practical. You're very consistent throughout your journey. And what I love about our conversation today is that you have daughters who are, who are seeing you in your element. I'm not sure how many other singers out there, and there are a few, but I think most of the women out there today in the industry, their kids are still babies. So this is a this is so fascinating, and I'm and I am in awe of of the conversation we had today. I'm really inspired, and I feel like there's hope. <laughs> no, Absolutely, it's great. always hope. <laughs> there's always hope. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. And okay, thanks so much for having me today. Yeah, and if anyone wanted to reach out to you, how would they do that? So. Um, the best would be um, my email address to reach out here to the studio, to the office. Um, we have a great staff and they can help you, you know, just kind of with any end of production or if you're just looking to reach out with questions, if you're looking to get involved. Um, my email address is cnotestudios54 at gmail.com. Um, you can find us also on the web. We're listed there with our office phone number and I am on Instagram. You can check out my page. Again, you won't find me, but you'll find a lot of the goings on um, in my studio um, and sometimes, you know, different projects that I'm working on. And you can also download my music, um, Miracles and Miracles 2. They're both available on iTunes and Spotify at this point and all streaming platforms and music. So, and you're singing on them? No, no. This is um, David Perlman sings on Miracles 1. Miracles 2 is a very talented um, young boy by the name of Yehuda Kirshner and um, they are my voice on those albums so. thank you so much for coming on to the show thank you thank you so much for listening until the end if you enjoyed this episode please share it with your friends subscribe and if you're listening on an iPhone leave us a 5 star review if you'd like to reach out about my music coaching or podcast services email me at franciscak at gmail.com also check out the show notes for all the links See you next time.